Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. At the 2022 Convention of States Reclaiming Liberty Summit, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe gives a riveting presentation to 600 Convention of States leaders. Then, he sits down for an interview with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. I'm going to bring up somebody now who is a longtime friend of mine. And this is a guy who is a warrior. He is a guy who has put himself on the front lines of the battle. He has the scars to prove it. Y'all know him. It doesn't, like, I could read a, a bio of him and tell you all about the great stuff that he's done. But the, here's the thing I want you to know. I've known James O'Keefe for a lot of years on a very personal level. And the James that I know is a man who's vulnerable like any man, who is a warrior, who has the courage to step into the front lines of the fight in a way that few other people have. And that's something to be admired and respected. But I would also add this. James O'Keefe is a true friend. And when the firefight comes and you need a friend, if I need a friend, one of the people that I would call without any doubt that he would come and do anything that was necessary to help you or me is my friend, and please give it up, for James O'Keefe, the founder of Project Veritas. Thank you all. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you. Uh, real, real honor to be amongst such an amazing group of patriots. And I was telling Mark as I came in here, I could, I could feel the energy in the room. And he said that all of you are warriors. So I am going to talk to you for about half an hour uh, about, I've been asked to make a few remarks about courage, which I will do. But I'm first going to tell you a little bit about what Project Veritas has been doing and tell you some stories of some people that I have found, whistleblowers, people in the government, people in institutions who I think demonstrate courage and then tell you what I think is going on uh, with some different legal issues, including the FBI, which is out of control. We'll get to that. Uh, so I'm going to put the, some, something on the screen for you here. If we can get this up on the screen. This is, uh, this is me <laughs> uh, when I was 25. And I was dressed as a pimp. <laughs> and these are the different characters that I used to play. In the beginning of Project Veritas, I had to find a way to get inside these places, right? Always without breaking the law, but I had to get inside and I had to go undercover to do that. And that's what we do. We expose waste, corruption, dishonesty. We believe that uh, this is the solution, that, that showing people what's going on is the solution. We have to wake people up. So that's our mission, to expose corruption, dishonesty, self-dealing, and misconduct. Suffice to say, we will never be out of a job. Never, never be out of a job. Um, and most recently, in fact, this week, every, every week now, we're, we're putting out these stories. Just this week, we put out a story about this guy. He said he, he was a, he's a teacher in Oklahoma, and he says he's an anarchist who wants to burn down the system, wants to remove religion, he says, from society. And we caught him on tape with one of our undercover reporters. Um, I always call these people and or confront them for comment. It's usually very funny what, what ends up happening. Uh, when, when we do this. He found that I was James O'Keefe and he did not want to give me a comment. And then what was remarkable, this happened this week, is we released this video 
And then someone, anonymously, although we know who they are, but I'm not going to tell you who they are, sent us a recording of that teacher's principal. Someone was with the principal of that school and recorded her and provided that recording to Project Veritas. And in that recording of this principal, who supervises the teacher, the principal was very worried that she was going to be recorded by Project Veritas. I think we have a clip of this. This is pretty funny stuff. If we could play this uh, clip. Please take your phones out. Don't videotape me, please. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> like put this on social media. Don't make my me feel like Project Veritas is with us. Don't make me feel like Project Veritas is here. Project Veritas is everywhere, by the way. <laughs> please. And just, just yesterday, the Secretary of uh, the state of Oklahoma's education department called for the teacher's teaching license to be revoked as a result of these tapes that have come out. So I'll tell you a few more stories about education. I think it's important. I'm going to talk about whistleblowers. This is a story that we did this past month in Connecticut. This is an assistant principal, not a low-level guy. This guy manages all the hiring for the public school in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he says that if you are Catholic, that he does not hire you. That's against the law. He was caught on this videotape saying this. If you were raised on Don't hire them, says Jeremy Boland. He goes on to talk about how he indoctrinates the children in a subtle way, basically uh, playing the role of a caricature of what you would think a public school teacher is doing in private. We released this. The teacher, this is not the, te the principal, the assistant principal was suspended by the superintendent in Greenwich. Um, and uh, it was, became quite a big story in Connecticut. And I found it interesting that the governor of Connecticut, the U.S. senator from Connecticut, and the attorney general, all Democrats, admonished the behavior of what the assistant principal is doing. But there comes this statement again by the Education Association, the teachers union the state, saying, this is about me, this is a private email which was given to me again by a whistleblower close to these people. Guys, don't click on the link. Don't watch James O'Keefe's videos. We don't want to give him any more views. He's, they say, don't feed the beast. They say, alert your members, your, your, your educators, that Veritas is in the state of Connecticut and lurking around. <laughs> That's right, we're lurking everywhere. We are everywhere lurking. That is exactly right. Um, what's interesting also is um, they say it's time to double down on caution. You know, it really is becoming clear to me that this is not just a fight for journalism and the First Amendment. It's sort of a fight for light versus darkness. They want, they want to shut down conversation. They, want, they don't want anyone to know anything that's happening, and I want to increase conversation. I want them to talk. They want me to stop talking. I want, I want them to talk. And they don't want to be caught on video talking. Um, there was a press conference. There was major mainstream media came. All the local TV stations came there in the state of Connecticut, and the Attorney General of Connecticut actually called me a, quote, Vigilante journalist. <laughs> I don't know what that means, vigilante. Does that just mean journalist? <laughs> I mean, all journalism is the vigilante kind, particularly if you're a 
credentialed journalist at the New York Times and you just report what you're spoon-fed by your sources and the government tell you to report, that's what journalism is supposed to do. And tonight this and we have all these tapes which make sure we work for the governor of Connecticut, the attorney general. We like to confront these people. I always give them a chance to comment. And sometimes when we confront them, because Veritas is the tip of the spear, and it's important for all of you to be the tip of the spear. It is sometimes remarkable what happens when you confront him. This is the principal in Greenwich, Connecticut. I am asking for comment in a restaurant. Is it ethical to discriminate against people due to their religion? This violates Connecticut law. Right now. Statute for, I'm sorry? This needs to stop. Why does it need to stop? Because I'm telling you it needs to stop. What are you going to do? Why do I have to do anything? It needs to stop. Well, I'm a journalist. I'm asking questions. So you, you want me to stop asking questions? I didn't agree to it. So you didn't agree to it. Now, what's remarkable is after this happens, you know, you know, if you're a Fox 5 reporter or News 12, some local stations in Connecticut, New Jersey, um, you know, we, we're, in a, we're in a public parking lot here. There's a little piece of grass. It's a public park. Three police officers were called on me. Three police officers. And this guy threatens to arrest me if I ask another question, if I continue doing what I'm doing. Well, all your cameras you so and microphones, you said she's yeah. the manager. Of the, don't, yes. don't go in there. Because no. if you trespass, you're going to get locked up. Get locked up says the police officer. And, and throughout my career, it seems like every time that we show up to talk to these people, they call the police. I mean, it's kind of, it's deeply ironic on multiple levels. First of all, they want to defund the police. But second of all, we're journalists asking questions. So we've done all these stories. And I think that one of the things I've learned about these stories is they do tend to bring people together. They do tend to form consensus. We should not be discriminating against people due to their religion. We should not be not hiring you because of your age. So the left and the right have coalesced. And uh, you could go to our YouTube channel, watch more of them. They're very entertaining. This lady actually ran into the dentist's office when I confronted her, um, to, I guess to get a root canal, right? So we do it Chris Hansen style, sit down with them, and they're sort of sh shocked. Ch changing gears a little bit, tip of the spear. Mark talks about that. Um, Project Veritas has a lot of lawyers. Lots of lawyers. We're basically a law firm at this point, <laughs> fighting for the First Amendment. In fact, I was just in D.C. at a jury trial. This was a civil trial, my second federal jury trial in three years. This, this was a, about a video we did in 2016 involving a group called Democracy Partners. They sued me for breach of fiduciary duty for going in there with a camera, recording what was happening, and publishing it. I don't know what the fiduciary duty is. We certainly weren't paid by them. We never signed any non-disclosure agreements. Just a little brief clip to show you what the story was back in 2016, and I'll tell you what happened in court. Political operatives talking about stirring up trouble and provoking violence at Trump rallies. The video comes from Project Veritas. You know, I know nothing about this. I'm not, you know, I, I can't deal with every one of his conspiracy theories, but I hope you all have something to eat and something to drink on the way back to New York. Thank you. Some of the things you'll hear on the tape are certainly hard to ignore. Enough we're learning for one person to be fired so far, another to resign. A lot of questions being asked about the recording. Nobody's really supposed to know about me. <laughs> so the Chicago protest, when they shut all that, that was us. It was more him than me, but none of this is supposed to come back to us. Because we want it coming from people. We don't want it to come from the party. No, I'm saying, we have mentally ill people, mm -hmm. but we pay. Do you shit? 
make no mistake. Over the last 20 years, I've paid off a few homeless guys to do some crazy stuff. And I've also taken them for dinner, and I've also made uh -huh. sure they had a hotel. We were contacted directly with the DNC and the campaign. So, yeah. I am contracted to him, mm -hmm. but my, I answer to the head of special events for the DNC mm -hmm. and the head of the special events and political for the campaign. The campaign pays DNC, DNC pays democracy partners, democracy partners pays the FOMO group, the FOMO group goes and executes the shit on the ground. In the end, it was the candidate, Hillary Clinton, the future president of the United States who wanted ducks on the ground. I don't repeat that to anybody. We, we published the video. It, it was mentioned in the presidential debates. Um, it, was, it got tens of millions of views. Uh, Bob Creamer lost his contract with the Democratic National Committee, and the man you saw on the tape, Scott Fogel, was terminated. We talk about accountability in this country. To do this, to do anything effective, is to invite vitriol and scorn and defamation to be targeted, to be smeared, to be tarred and feathered, and to be sued. Now, I spent two weeks of my life this past month in a federal courtroom, which I call a sensory deprivation chamber, <laughs> in Washington. This is in Washington, D.C. That should tell you everything you need to know. There's an actual sketch artist, because cameras are not allowed in federal courtrooms. Maybe we should revisit that. And those are the jurors uh, in D.C. And just a little about jury, I, I feel like I've become learned in jury selection. It's called voir dire. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, federal jury trial is a civil action, not a criminal. There's nine jurors. They bring in 40 people, 40 jurors, and the judge asks them a series of questions. Questions like, do you think you could be fair if the issue involves the presidential election, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, undercover journalism? Questions like, have you ever heard of James O'Keefe before they're asking these 40 jurors in a room? And some people say, yes, I have heard of Project Bear. I have heard of James O'Keefe. And then they bring them up one by one. These are 40 jurors brought up individually, the federal judge asking them questions, our lawyers asking them questions. And some of the, some of the remarks by these jurors are truly extraordinary. Like, some of them said, there's no way that I can be fair against James O'Keefe and Project Veritas. One of the jurors, this is, again, 40 people get, get uh, down to nine. Uh, said, the burden lies upon the defendant to prove his innocence. Whew, speak about lack of education in this country. Um, so what happens is, there's 40 people, and I've been told that this voir dire, jury selection, lasted two days. It went longer than usual because of the uniqueness of me, Project Veritas, and, and our case, a journalism story about the 2016 election involving Trump and Clinton. 20 out of the 40 jurors were struck due to their bias, or prejudice, if you want to call it that, against us. And we're left with about around 20, and then each lawyer gets to strike five. And wouldn't you believe it, that two out of the 40 jurors actually were fans of Project Veritas. They knew our work. They were asked if they could be fair, and they said yes. And both of those individuals were African-American, and their lawyers struck both of those jurors off the jury pool. Pretty remarkable. And the case goes to trial with nine jury, jurors. And at the end of the trial, there's a case involving breach of fiduciary duty. They're arguing that I have a duty of loyalty to the Hillary Clinton contractors. The case goes to a verdict. Um, the jury comes out, 
And by the way, if you ever have not been through this, this is, I've been through it now twice. It, your heart is beating real fast. You're, what's going to happen here? This is a civil case, not a criminal case, but it's about the First Amendment. And the jury comes out and they leave the damages blank. So they can't agree on damages. Maybe they're hung about this issue, about whether they owe us, we owe them money for what it is that we did with our story. And the judge says, well, let's send the jury back to keep deliberating. But the instructions say, um, if you can't agree, then you must leave the line below blank. And they left it blank. After seven hours, they come back, leave it blank. The judge sends it back in. They come back out a second time, and they leave it blank again. Now, at this point, okay, we're done, right? These are, these, by the way, these jurors, some of them had like PhDs. One of them had a master's degree in mathematics. It's like a rocket science jury. I think they understand the instructions. But that federal judge sent that jury back in a third time to make sure they got it right. And the jury returned a verdict against me. And I am now appealing this to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals on the issue of whether or not a journalist owes a duty of loyalty to the news subjects he's investigating. I hope I win. I hope I win. Investigative journalism hasn't really happened in the last few decades, not since ABC's Diane Sawyer did primetime live in the early 90s. One of the questions I get asked constantly, and I think this is, we're going to get to the heart of the matter here as it pertains to whistleblowing, courage, and I am an optimist, how we can make a difference is the question is, what can I do, right? You hear it all the time. What can I do? How can I help? One of the comments on our videos is, nothing ever happens to these people. No one's ever held accountable. You know, and all these Republicans work in Washington, D.C., and supposed to have oversight hearings, right, about the Department of Justice. Maybe the people and the politicians are afraid to hold them accountable because the FBI has stuff about those politicians. I don't know. But the question really that we're trying to address here is what can we do? You're all warriors. You're all here for a reason. You believe in this project, the Convention of States. You want to make a difference in society. So let me tell you some stories of some people who decided to do some incredibly bold some would say courageous. It takes a lot of nerve to do what these people did. Whistleblowing. People on the inside. People on the outside. People who were not well known until they did the deed. Dan Borston says, in our world of big names, our heroes tend to be anonymous. Tend to be the people who have virtues. Uh, the teacher, the nurse, the mother, the honest cop. Let me tell you about some of these people. It started... About three years ago, with a woman inside Facebook, an insider who told me that I found what the company Facebook is doing is appalling, and I felt the people have a right to know what's going out, and I have to sacrifice my comfort. That woman published documents showing Facebook was censoring people like Steven Crowder and lying about it. And there were some congressional letters sent, but that started something. It's almost like People, in order to do the thing, have to watch somebody else do it. In the beginning of a charge, the patriot is a scarce sort of entity. But when his cause succeeds, the timid join him, for then it costs less to be a patriot. So this individual inside Facebook published this. It wasn't a huge story, but it was something. And she was fired by Facebook. And by the way, I subsequently hired her as an undercover journalist full-time for Project Veritas. And, and then something remarkable happened. We get another message from another guy 
working for, and even arguably uh, he has a higher position inside a company called Pinterest. Pinterest, publicly traded company, $15 billion company, one of the largest tech companies in the United States. Eric Cochran caught Pinterest de-boosting and censoring and targeting Christians on Pinterest, which is kind of strange that you would type in, we, we actually tried it, I tried to type in Bible verses, wouldn't let me do it, and, and Eric showed us the code. He was a software engineer making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year working for this company, and he went on the record, the first person to ever do this. I've seen the previous person, but this guy goes on the record, and what's remarkable, what's remarkable is what he says. There's a lot of wisdom coming from a 24-year-old. To me, there's no other option. I could go through life, and I could live in the comforts of life, then I'll just fall to ashes. No matter what I lose, it'll mean something after I'm gone. Eric was fired by Pinterest, and um, we hired him as our director of whistleblowing. <laughs> Eric directly inspired another guy inside, this time Google. The stakes are getting higher now. We've all heard of Google and their crazy things that they're doing. This guy, Zach, inside Google, gave us documents, and this is like something out of 1984. Uh, by the way, 1984 is the year I was born. Very prophetic. <laughs> inside Google, this is, not, this is not Saturday Night Live. I did not make this up as satire. This is actually something Google wrote. They have a memo called Definition of Algorithmic Unfairness. Algorithmic unfairness. So even if it's factually correct, it could just be unfair. And again, you would have thought me to be a conspiracy theorist, but not for the document that this guy gave me. Zach, too said, just like Eric did, that this is what life is about. It's about doing something that matters, and he, he almost put it in spiritual terms. I feel that when I'm coming and, and explaining what Google was doing, this is an act of atonement, okay, to make my conscience clear. Because it hangs on a lot of people's consciences. You know, think about it. Think about what's happening right now. We'll get to the FBI in a minute. Do you think that all of the people working there like what they're doing? Do you think that? Of course not. I mean, look at these people. And they never would have came public, but not for the person that came public before them. Had the Facebook girl not done it, had Eric not done it, Zach wouldn't have done it, had that Zach not done it, I Carrie Porch wouldn't have done it. This is a guy working for CNN as a satellite TV technician. Carrie Porch walked up to me, literally walked up to me at a conference much like this and said, I work for a three-letter agency. I thought he meant like the CIA or something. I was like, whoa. But then I find out he works for CNN. And he, and he took one of our hidden cameras in 2019 and recorded everything, including Jeff Zucker, the president's conference calls every morning. I asked Carrie Porch, why did you, I mean, I asked Carrie Porch probably the same question all of you might ask me. Well, aren't you afraid? Why are you doing? What compelled you to do this, Carrie? I decided to wear the camera because I didn't see any other option. Because I I noticed that I was in a very unique position in space and time to just do something to protect the republic. He didn't. 
Notice, notice the language there. He didn't see any other option. It's very profound. He, he, it was a choiceless choice. People think that we choose this. Maybe Carrie was called to do it. Maybe I'm called to do this. Maybe you're called to do something, whatever it is that you're doing. Carrie was called to do it. And he even recorded not bad guys. He recorded a guy that was actually a good guy at CNN. This guy named Patrick Davis. Patrick Davis was criticizing his network. Carrie felt horrible for reporting on this, but he felt he had no choice. And <laughs> I ended up hiring Patrick Davis as my executive producer at Project Veritas. <laughs> And there was this guy, a postal worker, fast forward to 2020. You all heard about what's going on in our elections. People talk a big game about all the potential fraud and all the circumstantial evidence. We never actually see any smoking gun evidence. Along comes a postal worker who told me on the record while he was running his route, I was recording him on Skype while he was delivering the mail, and he said he overheard people doing things they shouldn't be doing. What's remarkable about this guy, this is a postal worker in Erie, Pennsylvania, is that after this video went out of him saying he witnessed certain things, the FBI, the Department of Justice, some guy, some spook from the uh, office of the Inspector General flew from D.C. to interrogate this postal worker for hours in a George Orwell-style shakedown where the federal agent actually said this. I, I, I'm not... Well, I am actually. I am trying to twist you a little bit because in that, believe it or not, your mind will kick in. I'm not scaring you, but I am scaring you. The federal agent was trying to coerce the witness. This is a three-hour-long meeting. Thank God the postal worker recorded it on his iPhone recorded the federal agent trying to coerce the... And none of this would ha be happening had not the first person done the thing inside Facebook. So uh, we've been trying to find this Russell Strasser and I want to do a Mike Wallace on. I realize Mike Wallace is dead. Remember before I was born when they used to go confront people in the boardrooms with the microphones and confront the power? Remember we used to do that? They don't do that anymore. What they do now is hand deliver you on a platter what the powers that be want you to, to know. They give you the sanctioned information. This is unsanctioned information. And that's what, that's what we need in this country. We need to give people the unsanctioned information. Now, what's remarkable about this guy, this guy, combat veteran Marine, said this to me about his experience dealing with the federal government trying to coerce him. Yeah, I've got a daughter. My daughter's four, so she doesn't know anything about this. She doesn't understand this. This isn't. But I'm hoping that someday she's proud of me for what I'm doing. I, I'll tell y'all, I'd rather be out back in Afghanistan getting shot at by Afghans, honest to God, than, you know, having to be in this kind of position. I'd rather be getting shot at overseas than publish information in the United States that the public has a right to know. Think about that. Marine, I'm not, a, I'm not a veteran of the armed services. I can't possibly fathom what that's like for him to make a statement like that. And to have our own United States government coercing a, a witness like that, 
Maybe, maybe it's safe to say that we have crossed the Rubicon, right? I'll and it's terrifying. <laughs> and sometimes it's damn fun. This is a woman in Texas, worked for Fox 26, not Fox News Channel. This is a local TV station. She didn't like the bias, so she got creative. She was inspired by all the people I just showed you, and on the air, she blew the whistle. Fox 26 reporter Ivory Hecker is live in Montgomery County to take a look at that aspect. Thanks, guys. That's right. Before we get to that story, I want to let you, the viewers, know that Fox Corp has been muzzling me to keep certain information from you, the viewers. And from what I'm gathering, I am not the only reporter being to, subjected to this. I am going to be releasing some recordings about what goes on behind the scenes at Fox because it applies to you, the viewers. I found a nonprofit journalism group called Project Veritas. It's going to help put that out tomorrow, so tune into them. But as for this heat wave across Texas, you can see what it's doing to AC units. Did you like how she transitioned so seamlessly back to the heat wave? <laughs> she actually inspired another woman to do the same thing at CBS. Listen to this. This is a meteorologist. Showers moving in around 8 a.m. And speaking of a brand new week, I will be sitting down this week with Project Veritas to discuss the discrimination that CBS is enforcing upon its employees. Tune in to Project Veritas for my full story. Now, later Monday, we will see those showers. <laughs> and she goes right back to reporting the weather conditions. And these people are so brave. They're coming out. They're coming out. They're coming out. I'm going to get to the climax in a minute because it takes a dark turn before it gets better but now we get into the, the pandemic we had a woman come out inside of hhs federal government whistleblower on the record showed me her badge jody o'malley was her name she was inspired by the two women who are working for the tv stations listen to this i wouldn't necessarily say i'm afraid because my faith lies in god and not man this is evil at the the highest level you have the fda you have the CDC that are both supposed to be protecting us. Are you afraid they're going to retaliate against you? Yeah. I'm a federal employee. What other federal employees do you see coming out? Pretty remarkable human beings out there. And there's many, many more. I would even say to you right now, there are people like her working inside the agencies, drafting an email to Project Veritas, Veritas Tips Approach, and wondering if they should send it, right? They're, 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 they're teetering on whether or not they should do the right thing and lose their pension because they got kids in school and the mortgage, etc. But there are people out there. This is the funniest story, I think. This is Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company. We haven't pissed off Google, Facebook, CNN. Now we're going to piss off Pfizer. And this is Pfizer. Uh, and, and this is an email given to us from a whistleblower working for Pfizer that says the uh, senior director, this is the number, number three or four position in the company, is lying to their customers about, about the ingredients in their product. From the perspective of corporate affairs, we want to avoid having the information on the fetal cell lines floating out there. So it's a story about lying. So we decide to find this woman. Vanessa Gelman is her name. She's some executive at Pfizer. And do the whole Mike Wallace 60 Minutes thingy that the people used to do. So we find this woman right as she's about to go for a jog outside her house. This woman runs faster than she has ever ran away from us. Watch this. Hey, Vanessa. Vanessa Gellman, I'm a reporter with Project Veritas. Why did you send emails 
telling uh, Pfizer employees not to report that you guys were using fetal cell lining, miss. What else are you hiding from the public today? Miss, what else are you hiding from the public? The public needs to know. Why are they running? Imagine how bad it must be when there's literally nothing that, you can, that can come out of the, your mouth that won't make your situation worse for you. Why are they running? By the way, they always run. <laughs> I, if I had more time, I'll tell you that we went after a Twitter guy and he sprinted down the streets of New York City for like 15 minutes. And it is, it is not always, diff it is sometimes there's great joy in fighting and being a warrior, to quote Mark Meckler, because this is really about being a warrior for, for truth and transparency. People made memes out of this Pfizer executive and they posted them all over Instagram. By the way, we're banned on Twitter for quoting people. And Instagram, you can't, you can't actually tag us on Instagram, but that didn't stop millions of people from sharing this video because they made these hilarious musical memes out of this Pfizer lady. Hey, hey. She's a runner, she's a track star. Yelman, she gon' run away when it gets hard. She can't take the pain, she can't get scars. Excuse me, sir. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you have time to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Hey, don't run from the Lord! <laughs> they probably hate being ridiculed like that. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon, to quote Saul Linsky. On a serious note, Tom Fitton at Judicial Watch called me up after this video came out. This video comes out on Pfizer, and then I'm, and we're having a good time, we're eating popcorn, watching the memes come in, and then and on a serious note, we get a letter. Tom forwards to me FOIA requests, one of his FOIA requests, the FBI has completed its search of records responsive to, this is Judicial Watch's FOIA request, and the information is located in an investigative file about communications regarding Project Veritas between the FBI and Pfizer. What is the FBI doing talking to Pfizer about journalists? It's terrifying. It's actually quite amazing that the FBI admitted there were such communications. Maybe there's someone inside the FBI that likes Project Veritas, and if so, you can reach out to us at veritastips at protonmail.com. <laughs> um, now, I'm getting close to concluding this talk, and I think Mark's going to sit down with me and ask, do some Q&A. Um, this is an image of me, 25 years old, walking out of jail. The Bernard Parish Prison in Louisiana. I was arrested by the FBI when I was 25. It's a long story. Um, I was asking a question of a senator, and I asked the wrong question. I was the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. They heard about what I did to ACORN. They heard about our ACORN investigation, and they put me in federal prison. I eventually pled guilty to a Class B misdemeanor. I was given three and a half years of probation, supervised probation. I couldn't travel, uh, and, it was, and it was terrifying. But I didn't really fully understand what I was up against until most recently, by the way, this is the CEO of Pfizer and he made some comments uh, about, about groups like Project Veritas. Um, last year, I got a knock on my door at 6 a.m. by 10 federal agents. And by the way, all those stories I just showed you, that those were happening just in the weeks prior to this. And I heard a knock on the door, right? A, a very loud knock as loud as you can possibly imagine. And it was 6 a.m. on a Saturday in November in New York State, very dark outside. 
and I, and I ran to the door. My first thought was, they, they, they've got, there's got to be federal agents, because they had raided my former colleagues two days prior. And I opened the door, and there were 10 agents with flashlights in my eyes, with just like in the movies, you know, with the jackets and the vests and the guns. They threw me against the wall and put me in handcuffs. And in that span of about 30 seconds, when that happened, it's kind of funny, the first thing I thought when I went to the door was, I hope they don't break my door down. I'm afraid they're going to ruin the locks on my door, because I had quite a security system. So I had to make sure I opened the door before they rammed it down. I realized just how historic of an event this, that was, because yes, the, I mean, now I feel like I, I laugh with um, my general counsel, I say, now they're raiding everybody. I was raided by the FBI before it was cool. Um, raiding priests and mothers and all types of innocent, innocuous people. But this time they did it to a journalist. And as I was, this is happening to me, I'm thinking, well, this is something to do with the, some, the diary. You know, Joe Biden's daughter had a document that was sent to us. We're well within our First Amendment rights to receive information, later alleged to be stolen. We didn't think it was stolen. But even if it was, we had a right to receive a document. Hell, the New York Times does that every single day. <laughs> they published Trump's tax returns. Those were certainly stolen. They didn't even publish the document. They published people familiar with the matter, talking about it. So as I'm being in handcuffs, not wearing clothes, being targeted, and I mean, this is violence. This is, this is a violent act by the state. I am realizing that we have now crossed a Rubicon that is so significant. Because if you think about it, what possible remedy does my government have to give me? after They've, they've taken my reporter's notebooks, which, which contains some anonymous sources inside the government, which is the First Amendment's designed to uphold. There is no amount of money that they can give me to make me whole after crossing that Rubicon. And I'm realizing, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then your mind starts to, starts to drift into what I would call a state of paralysis and fear. Uh, and I consider myself a relatively fearless person. Uh, but I'm, I'd be lying to you if I said that I wasn't afraid, especially in that moment. The first thing I thought, are they trying to put child porn on my phone? Are they trying to put drugs in my underwear drawer? And you might think, well, they would never do such a thing. But they're raiding a journalist's home. So what, what aren't they willing to do? Another thing that struck me about these federal agents that were in my home at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, there was 10 of them or so, is that a few of them looked like they didn't like what they were doing. A few of them looked like they didn't like what they're doing. And I... And I thought, well, maybe they're just federal agents and they're pretending, right? They're pretending to be friendly. But I could just see it in their eyes. That instinct that I had was later confirmed because some months later, a whistleblower would come to Project Veritas inside the FBI. That whistleblower whose name I cannot give you, gave us a document. Why does the document matter? The, FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, this, this matter is ongoing. No one's been charged. It's been two years. They took, they took 200,000 of our emails. They went to Google, Apple, Microsoft, and issued secret subpoenas before the raid to compel those companies to hand over all of my photographs 
and all of my emails. And I'm an American journalist. And when asked by the federal judge to respond to our lawyers who said this is a violation of United States regulations and laws, you can't do this. It's a violation of the First and Fourth Amendment. I wrote a whole memo. The prosecutors told Your Honor, James O'Keefe is not a journalist because he doesn't get permission, consent, from the people he videotapes. The federal prosecutor actually said that in New York. And then a whistleblower came out a few months later with this document. It was apparently from within the FBI's computer systems, not classified, current, but definitely restricted. And the document, this is an FBI document, the FBI labeled us news media on this document. And this agent, currently paid by the FBI, was so outraged by what was happening inside the FBI that he sat down with me on the record in the shadows and he said this. Project Veritas appears to be a victim of political undertakings, which is where this, this agency has gone. Well, what do you hope comes from your endeavor to be here and, and say all this? I would hope that we could end up with a nonpartisan law enforcement agency in this country that's not doing things that seem to be inappropriate. Just you doing the job that you're told following those orders, this is the good German concept from Nuremberg, to maintain your paycheck and your pension that gives you the Holocaust. It's government employees sticking it out for two more years with something they don't believe in at this point because they know it's wrong. We cannot have partisan investigations and using a piece of the executive branch as a weapon. Pursuit should be for truth. Very similar to what your, your organization stands for in name. I call upon I call upon people like this to come forward. I call upon people to follow their conscience. There were definitely moments in my life where I, don't, I wouldn't say that I thought about giving up because I never quite would put it that way. But something Mark said introducing me here really struck me, which is he said the founders said they would give up their lives, their fortunes, to sacred honor. And, and, I, and I learned something. I didn't know that they pledged that to each other. And I thought that was very profound. And here's why. Because uh, I can say that as a leader or as a warrior, whenever you're the tip of the spear, it is very lonely. It can feel very isolating. No matter how many people thank you or come up and donate or tell you, keep going, it, it just feels lonely. It just does. Because you're doing something that other people just, most human beings don't do what those people did. I would, I would draw an analogy. It's like being, uh, Daniel Ellsberg said, it's like you're an astronaut you know, in outer space and you have a lifeline and you cut it off and float away. You're just in another world, you're in another place. And it can be very lonely, but when I was in my darkest days, it certainly wasn't recently, it was in the beginning of my career when I was arrested by the FBI, uh, handcuffed the first time, um, there was no Project Veritas and there was no donors and there weren't all of you. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I, this is really hard. <laughs> this is really terrifying and difficult, but then, there are certain people in my life, even if it's your mother, your sister, your best friend, who know that you didn't do that thing they're accusing you of doing. And you know that you didn't do that thing they're accusing you of doing. And you know what I'm talking about. You're all targeted, maybe even by people that you love, people in your family. But then you start, okay, well, at least I have these people, this core group of people who believe in me and know what I stand for. And what Mark said, and I know Mark Meckler, 
if something ever happened to me, he'd be outside that jail cell in a New York minute there to support me. And I know that all of you would be there to support people like this if they needed you. And that's what this is about. This is about, I mean, I look out at you and I see a room filled with patriotic people who understand what's going on. You have the right discernment and you have the will to fight. But most importantly, the most important thing of all, something I did not have in the beginning of my journey when I spent three years of my life basically confined with nobody. You guys have each other. And you have me. And I have you. And that's the most important thing. So never give up. Keep fighting. And stay tuned because Project Veritas has people everywhere. All right, uh, here's what we're going to do, James. Look, I mean, I think, and, and this is something that's important to me. You and I are friends. We go way back. And I want people to know you more like I know you. And so this, this happens to us. You're in the media. You do all this stuff. You do interviews. You do conferences like this. And so people meet the public James, mm -hmm. right? And because that's, that's what you got to do. So I want them to get to know actually you. And so I want to start with this. A little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and, and how you think that influenced how you, how you got to what you're doing now. Uh, grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I would say... We got a big team a in New Jersey. State of New Jersey people <laughs> yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, Bergen County, which is the very northeastern tip of New Jersey on the New York State border. Uh, my parents are from upstate New York, though. So they're from Buffalo and Rochester, respectively. So there you go. Good New York. I saw a Bills too. fan yeah. here today that, with the Bills hat, Buffalo Bills. Um, and I grew up, in, I would say I grew up in a household that was not really politically active. I would say it was conservative, but not rigidly. Uh, my father and grandfather did property maintenance, and I would work with them. I'm the James the third, James Senior, James Junior, a bunch of Irish people in a pickup truck uh, working on homes. And I'm I did married that. to a McGillan, so I'm partial to that. I like that. Well, there you go. My mom's McAfee, and my dad's O'Keefe, so it doesn't get much more. That's good. I like that. Uh, and uh, I did spent most of my upbringing doing manual labor with my father and grandfather, and then. I would say I read Animal Farm when I was in ninth grade. That was the first time I ever could, you know, had that kind of instinct about justice. Right. And then when I went to college, Rutgers State University, of New Jersey, I had your parents gone to college. Were you first to go to? College? My parents went to uh, State University of uh, New York. Okay. And my dad's an engineer. My mom's a physical therapist. And when I went to college, I was surrounded by political correctness run amok, which this is in 2003, 2004. YouTube did not yet exist. Uh, Facebook was just getting started. And um, my professors were basically telling me how great the Soviet Union was. And I just remember feeling, and I was a philosophy major, but right. I remember feeling, well, this is, this is odd. And I wasn't really political, but I remember thinking, this, this needs to be corrected. So I, I did a little research. I don't know what compelled me to do this. I just did it. And I found out the ratio of people who gave to the Democrats versus Republicans, and it was like 104 to 1 right. ratio. And I, and I wrote a column about that, column for the daily newspaper. And I started writing a column. So that was my, how, how things got started. Okay. So uh, siblings? Sister. She's okay. an architect. Okay. Older, younger? She's uh, three years younger than me. Three years younger. Okay. How, has your family, I, I mean, I know they have, I assume they have, 
how are they affected by what you do? Because I, I think a lot of people don't realize this. When you're in the public eye, and especially when you're doing controversial stuff, you get attacked in the media, you get thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. It has an effect on you on the front line, but there's some real serious stuff that happens to a family that's well, really Well, I'm hard. very fortunate to have very good parents. I didn't, I, you know, you always think that you're, when you're growing up that your parents are weird, but then in my case I realized, well, these are really good people and very well-balanced people. My dad is a very driven guy who never gives up, and my mom's a you know, very sensible, balanced person who kind of taught me, in, for lack of a better way of putting it, like what, about justice and right. the importance of fairness. But I think it was very tough in 2010 when I, when I was uh, arrested. That was a horrible, kind of a nightmare thing, because I was on pretrial release, kind of feels like the sort of Damocles, you know, you're, right. you're facing a federal felony, which eventually I was exonerated for, but, and I spent three, four months living at home, and they, they felt it. When I was on federal- Can I back up for yeah. a second? So, and I've lived through some of this too, so I want to parallel the experience. When you got arrested, that was news. And yeah. so did they find out about in the news first? Yeah, it was a funny story. Yeah. I was, I mean, I wrote a whole book about this called Breakthrough. It's quite a story. I was, I was arrested on January 26, 2010. Um, I, I had a SUV pull up to me as I was uploading my footage. I was in a senator's office asking questions. It didn't break the law. And they detained me, handcuffed me, put me in shackles on my legs, my hands. They put a leather belt around me, put me in a Timothy McVeigh orange jumpsuit, and then processed me and put me in a prison cell, right. and then a parish prison, a jail cell, and then they give you that one phone call, right? Well, if you think about it, what, what phone numbers do you actually have memorized? You don't have your lawyer's Almost number nothing, memorized. Right? They don't have, you don't have your iPhone or right. your wallet. They take that away from you, and they take your belt away from you. So the only phone number I had memorized was my landline to my parents' house. And I, and I think it was like, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night. There's no chance. They picked up the phone, and I said, Mom, Dad, uh, something has happened. And I'm, I'm in a federal prison holding cell. Right. And they're like, I've been arrested by the FBI. And my dad's first words were, oh, dear God, James. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, and I said, listen, I, I, I actually think I said the words, I didn't do it. I didn't do whatever they're going to say I did. Because right. I'm in, a, it's a sensory deprivation chamber. You yeah. have no idea what's going on outside the world, you know. Yeah, I've been there. As you have, and it was really it was really terrifying. They put me in a cage, and they had this public defender present me with this crime that I did not commit, and it was a ten year, you know, prison sentence for for. He said, "You are being charged with a felony that carries ten years in prison." I'm sitting. I can't move. I'm chained to a chair. It's like, it feels like you're living in a dystopian. And at that moment in my life, at 25 years old, I thought my life was over. I said, there's no way, I mean, I never thought I'd be sitting here, like with all of you. I thought my life was completely over, like that was it. There's no way to escape to Houdini this. Right. I'm literally shackled in a chair. So I called my dad, and, um, but he, my parents always sort of understood, you know, and they always were there for me as I went through that. How, how is it today for them, you get attacked in the media incessantly, how do, how do they deal with that? I mean, is it, have they gotten used to that now? I think a lot of us have gotten used to that now. Yeah. I think the world has changed from five, six, seven years ago when yeah. 
when to be spoken ill of on Wikipedia was a novel concept. And now it's sort of like we all, understand, we all read between the lines in a way that we just didn't five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. We, and our country is more divided than it was. So uh, I, I think that most people understand when they slander you and defame you that it's become kind of a badge of honor in some, in some more than it used to. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I want to go to something more positive, and that's some pretty difficult, dark stuff you talked about, and you, you talked about those periods of your life. Um, I know that you, you and I were talking recently, and I was going to come out to the office, and you were said, I'll show you around the office, and, and I said, oh, I'm not really interested. And I just want to go sailing. Right. <laughs> and so I think this is something people probably don't know about you. You live a very intense life. There's a lot of pressure. You're doing a lot of press. Uh, you're being attacked. You're constantly being litigated against, threatened, home-rated. There's something that you do when you want to shut off your mind and just chill. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sa sailing, yeah. which you and I have to go. Yes. I, ca I canceled on the sailing because I was working. but yep. um, Which is normal for you, by yeah. the way. <laughs> but the good time to go sailing is whenever you feel it. Yeah, so I have a sailboat, and sailing for me is uh, it's, it's very therapeutic because I, when I'm sailing, I can't, I can't think about anything but sailing. It's some people like ride a motorcycle, they say it's your zen. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a very athletic, uh, mental, it's physics, it's, it's sort of aerodynamics, um, it's relaxing, there's no engine, so you're kind of, you know, one with the world. And uh, this past summer, I sailed my boat all the way up to Maine from New York. It was, it was quite By something. yourself? I have friends come for uh -huh. different, and one of the joys of sailing is, which I hope to do with you, is yeah. show people sailing who've never been sailing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I've never really done it, and so that's. But it's to me, it's just fascinating that you do that because your your mode of existence is high pressure, high speed. Yeah, and sailing is chill. Like it's very low. Like I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff yeah. going on, but it's a relaxing. Endeavor. It's not as relaxing as you might think. Okay, it's, I've never done it, so this is good. It's. Uh, <laughs> do we have any sailors out there, by the way? It's yeah. uh, got a few out there. It's very hard to explain. It's like you're you're going eight miles an hour, but it's like r jumping out of an airplane. The boat's healing. It's listing, so it's over at twenty degrees, um, you know. And it, it's it's slightly terrifying if you cr if you if you know the line that separates disaster from success is very thin. Mm, sort sounds of like, like undercover sort reporting. Of like <laughs> undercover journalism. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it's uh, fun and uh, it's. It requires a lot of self-reliance, and you're in your own world. There's no traffic lanes. There's no. There's no people. You're just sort of out there. So that you know. But I think part of part of my challenge is that um, uh, you know, it, as you are, you're an entrepreneur. You're right. a leader, right. and running an organization is probably the most stressful thing because I think that the outside forces will never defeat us. Right. It's actually the the, the division inside that can yeah. defeat. An organization or any cause, right. and as long as you have a strong organization with people who believe in the same values and are all going in the right direction, you can't really lose as long as you don't stop. So, uh, you know, we're getting to the end here of the evening. One last question for you, and, and feel free to wander on this. So, Project Veritas is how old now? Uh, Two thousand ten. Okay, so. so we're twelve years in. What do the next twelve years look like if you project out? Well, I think Project Veritas will be a more significant and more important uh, news organization than the New York Times in a few years. And 
We're already the only one of the only investigative journalism organizations in the United States because right. journalism is printing that which they do not want printed. We print things people don't want printed. So that's really important. And it just needs to sustain and scale. We're putting out stories almost every day. Uh, the, whistle, the FBI raid did, to, uh, to be honest, chill out a lot of our sources. Right. Rightfully so. But um, I think ultimately it'll, it'll help us. In fact, we had two journalists apply, undercover journalists apply. One of them was in the, you know, had worked in the, in the, in the Navy. And she goes, you know, James, that was my final job interview question. I'm talking to her. She goes, you know, James, I wasn't so sure about you, whether you guys are the real deal. But then you got raided by the feds. <laughs> and I said, if the feds are raiding you, you must be, you must be, you must be legitimate. <laughs> um, that one quick story about a donor, because yeah. you're a nonprofit, I'm a nonprofit. The same thing happened with a donor. It's like, it's like the uh, one, I don't know, in 2014, like our tax return got leaked because you can redact the names on 990. Right. But we, by accident, in one of the states, we didn't, we didn't put the black marker over the names. And I had New York Times reporters calling our donors, I mean, you had all these journalists, they're not busy exposing corruption, they're busy calling the donors, how could you support this man, right? You know, trying to shame them. This is in 2014. And I'm scared, I'm like, oh boy, are these donors gonna get cold feet, right? They're getting called by the New York Times. And this guy, I'm just gonna call him Bob, he calls me up and he goes, James, I got a national security reporter from the New York Times asking me why I wrote you a check for, you know, $25,000. And I said, well, what, Bob, what, what, what are you gonna do? He's like, well, obviously you're doing good work for them to be targeting you, so I'm gonna write you a check for $250,000. <laughs> so that's the answer to your question, what's gonna, it's gonna grow. Okay. It's, gonna, it's gonna hopefully grow. So let's close with this, we got about a minute left. Um, all these people, they're fans of yours, I'm a big fan of yours obviously, what can we do to make sure that it continues to grow and to support the work that you're doing. I mean, I think what you said to me and to them is, is very profound. You, you have to be there for each other. That's probably, in a, in a macro sense, the most important thing is that, you know, if anything happens, I'll be there for you and you'll be there for me, whatever we need as we fight our respective fights in this room. Um, and then I'm a fan of what uh, Dennis Prager usually says, which is you can, um, there's three things that you can do really practically other than what you just said. Number one, you can do this, you can fight. You can be the tip of the spear. You can be a, a, fight, a crusader, in my case, it's for the First Amendment and for reporting, and what you're doing is very important. Number two, you can donate to those people. That's the, and everyone can donate something, right? Or number three, you can do nothing. But number four doesn't count, whining and complaining and bitching. <laughs> that doesn't count. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. James O'Keefe. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.